Hey, let's stand. Let's stand for the reading of Ephesians chapter 2. You've been sitting for a while. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. We were lost. We focused on that for quite a while, didn't we? But now we are found. And so we get to look this week and next week at saving faith. And this morning we're going to look at the stark relief at saving grace. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This sends the reading of God's holy and errant and fallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. You, though, you can be seated. Grace. That's what we're looking at this morning. These are, by the very nature, these are topical sermons that we've been looking at, this mini, these mini-series within the larger series of Ephesians. But grace, it's a, it's a word at the center of what we believe Christianity to be about. It is the most famous of words and our most famous of hymns, is it not? Amazing grace we sing. It is the staple diet of Sunday school classes and curriculum. It, and it has been so clearly and so frequently defined amongst uh, the church and amongst the teaching of the church that anybody who has spent years in the church could quickly respond. If I were to ask you, what does grace mean? You would quickly say, unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Or perhaps you'd pull out an acrostic. The grace acrostic. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. But like the word Jesus, like the word Jesus, which Jesus is the best word the church has, grace is probably the second best word. But like our most wonderful words and most wonderful truths, grace, just like the name Jesus, is often one of our most frequently abused and cheapened words as well. Grace is abused when we use it to dismiss our own sins. Yeah, I'm going to leave my spouse. I know it's wrong, but there's grace for that. Grace is abused when we hide it, hide behind it, instead of engaging, doing the painful and difficult work as God's church to confront the sins of others. Instead of confronting the unrepentant and the abusers, instead we would rather take the easy way out and we would just simply claim, well, we just, we're all sinners, we all just need grace. I saw one tweet recently where someone said the modern day version of church support is we say, you don't challenge me about my sin and I won't challenge you about yours. That's modern day accountability. Grace is abused when we extend it casually and flippantly as if grace doesn't cost anything. We say, I'm a mess, you're a mess, we're a mess, and we just emotionally vomit all over each other without any consequences for sin. No, listen, we need to be safe. The church has to be safe. We have to be a place where we can admit that we are a mess. We are described as a child hospital, right? 
That's what people say about the church. We're a hospital for broken sinners, and that is wonderful. But what is the purpose of a hospital? It is not simply to diagnose. It is not simply to diagnose. For grace, though, is a place that heals. A hospital doesn't simply diagnose. It seeks to bring healing. In fact, if you're interested in getting healthy, simply going to the hospital to be diagnosed is a very dangerous place to go, for there's lots of diseases that run around here, just like there are rampant sort of spiritual diseases that run through here as well. See, grace is not opposed to merit. It is opposed, it is opposed to merit, but it is not opposed to efforts. And grace is abused. Grace is abused, and it's cheapened when it's withheld. When it's withheld. For those who have supposedly experienced it and yet will not extend it to someone else who desperately needs it, who won't forgive, who won't be gracious, who won't sacrifice for others. What do we do about this? It's our best word just about, and yet we're afraid of it because of cheap grace. But the answer to the abusing of grace in our church context is not to stop talking about grace. It's not to stop talking about it. Instead, it's to do every effort to put it back in the forefront of church life and to put the amazing back into grace. We might say that what we need to do is stop emphasizing grace so much because people abuse it. And actually, what we must do is do quite the opposite. We must reflect on it more deeply to the point where grace becomes amazing to us once again. You know, this is what happened in the Reformation. They found grace again. Robert Farrar Capon says this in his book, Between Noon and Three, he writes this, that the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves, and he saves single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all centuries of trying to lift yourself up into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that was simply this, that the saved were home before they ever started. Have you found that grace is amazing? Have you lost it? Well, let's see if we can put the amazing back into grace this morning. I didn't wasn't sure how to order it this morning, and so we're just going to go with reflections about grace. These are, this is topical. This is a lot of me. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But there's a lot of ground to cover, and so we're just going to try to put grace. There's some of it we've heard already in the past weeks. I'm going to bring some of those things back up that we've talked about, but we're going to simply run through reflections on grace. I have six of them. And some of you are freaking out right now because we usually go for three, for three points or four points at the most, and we already go 45 minutes. Meredith, we read new, new, uh, some new neighbor's uh, house this week. We're having dinner with them, and um, they, they go to church, to another church in the area, and they ask, well, how long um, are your sermons? And my wife goes, 50 minutes. And I could look on their face. It was like, well, we're sure to never see them in our church again. <laughs> Lord, have mercy on us all. Reflection one, grace. Six of them. Here we go. Grace is free. Grace is free. Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. We've already, that's what we reflected on the last three, four, five, six weeks. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's free. It's not our doing. It's a gift. It's a free gift, which is redundant, isn't it? Because if a gift isn't free, then it ceases to be a gift. A free gift means you don't pay for it. You don't earn it. 
and you can't pay it back as if it was a loan. On Christmas Day, when I give my children gifts, I don't, and they, some come to me and they say, thank you so much, Daddy, for my Christmas gifts. I don't look at them and say, great, well, the first payment on this is due January 1st. I take cash, check, or charge. Grace cost us nothing. Oh, and we contributed nothing to it. You contributed nothing to being created, and you contribute nothing to being saved. You don't meet the conditions to receive it. There are no conditions. He simply gives it to you. It is all of the giver's initiative. Remember, you were dead. You couldn't ask for it. You couldn't seek it. You couldn't initiate engaging it. You didn't seek, pursue, and you didn't reach out. God took the entire initiative. Grace that is unmerited. You don't deserve it. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift, the free gift, the free gift. That's reflection one. Look at that. We're already down one. Free to us, right? But it is not free to God. Yes, it's free to, free to us. Grace is free to us, but it was costly to God. For reflection two. Grace is so costly. We say we don't merit God's favor, and that is certainly true, but it isn't simply that we don't merit it. It's also that we don't deserve restoring and saving grace. But we did deserve something, didn't we? What have we learned? We deserved wrath. We were not just dead in sin. We were doomed in our sin. We deserved rejection. We deserved wrath. We deserved hell itself. We were sinners, and frankly, we were happy about it. We were enemies of God, and we took pride in it. We wanted nothing to do with God, and we reveled in it. We had nothing. The grace of God does not come cheaply because in order to provide us merit, someone first had to pay the penalty of what we did deserve. But grace, when grace, when it is shaped like mercy, is when you don't have to pay the penalty, someone else does. Grace shaped like mercy is when someone else takes the penalty for you. God himself put on human flesh and came into the world and he bears the responsibility for your failure and for mine, our failure to keep the law. He came and kept it perfectly and all the punishment for the lawbreakers that we deserved. He took it and he was our representative. He came and died for your sins. Oh, it was so costly. But have you forgotten about the seriousness of grace and its costliness? Grace is serious business. Grace has become one of those words that within the vocabulary of the Christian world, it is used so often and we become so accustomed to it that it almost is like simply the, the front word on a Hallmark card. But so therefore, we might, we might have to put it into its, its seriousness. And so to do that, we actually, let's look back to the Old Testament and grace in the Old Testament. You see, grace in the Old Testament was not mere cheap sentimentalism. God's grace in the Old Testament is more than a mere whim or a spineless capitulation to human rebellion. God does not ignore the problem of sin in the Old Testament and pretend it doesn't exist. That's often how we treat grace in the church. Grace is just pretending people don't sin. No, God feels a holy anger and wrath towards sin, and he cannot simply let it go. And so therefore, there is a need for our sin to be atoned for, to be sacrificed for, to be washed away. And so he deals with our transgressions by establishing what in the Old Testament? This sacrificial system. And here we begin to see the seriousness of grace. Because grace is a bloody business. And the Old Testament system puts this in, 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 raw, in a raw approach. Sacrifices, if you think about it, they would bring up hundreds and thousands of animals and they would slaughter them publicly. They would take the life of an animal it was raw and it was bloody. 
It is often said by opponents of the meat industry that more people would be vegetarians if they had to kill the animals they eat. That is probably true because slaughtering an animal is a dramatic and it's a powerful event. It involves violence and quite literally blood and guts. You see, too often we have the attitude of Adam and Eve about our sin, which is to believe that in our, in our shame of our sin, what did they do? They covered themselves with leaves, with fig leaves. But God comes and finds them, and in his grace, he covers them too, but he covers them with something more than mere leaves. Mere leaves won't do it. What does God do? He slaughters an animal in front of them and then clothes them, clothes them with that animal's skin. Imagine the impact of Adam and Eve and, and being clothed with the raw, bloodied hides. This is not the fake hides you can pick up at Cracker Barrel. This is not something that has been beautiful. He does it there. The warmth of the blood was still on the this, on this skin. Grace would have, would have been significant. It would have been serious. It would have been a bloody thing. Imagine how serious that your sin would have appeared if that's what it took to cover over your sin. And indeed, that's what it does. The blood of a lamb. The blood of a lamb. But no mere lamb. No, it's the lamb of God. God's son who came down. This is why the cross is violent and raw, and it's bloody, because in order to extend to us grace, there had to be the seriousness of shed blood, the blood of God's Son. Grace comes at a cost. And by the way, grace is free to us, but costly to God, and grace is unmerited favor to us, but grace, we understand, is merited by Jesus. It's merited by Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't simply come to pay the penalty for your sin. He also came to win for you the righteousness that you needed. He didn't come, and the cross didn't simply accomplish for you by bringing you out of the pit of the sin and bringing you out of the pit of the wrath of God and bring you back to ground zero. That's not what happened. Jesus doesn't come to you and say, look, I got you out of the pit. God no longer has wrath for you, so here's the deal. Now you've got to practice faith really well, and you've got to do better. Go do better, and then God will accept you as you do better. That's not what he said. No. He said, you know, we are, he says, looks at us and he says, you are saved by works, but not yours. But not yours. We are saved by the works of Jesus. Because he didn't simply take your sins, he also gives you his righteousness. He obeyed where we disobeyed. He is righteous where we are unrighteous. He is acceptable where we have been unacceptable. He has performed where we got stage fright. And he gave his performance to us. This is the great trade of all of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. We read this often, but we read it again today. For our sake, he, became, he made him to be sin. That means he gave him your sin, who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He got what from you? He got your sin. What did you get from him? His righteousness. This is grace, full and free. His mercy for me and his righteousness sets me free. Sets me free. Reflection three. And when he has set me free, grace then makes me secure. Grace is security. The freedom of grace is critical for setting us free. Free from the bondage of performance. Free from the insecurity of acceptance based on you. You see, for many of you, you have lived not under the law of grace, but under the law of sin and death, the silent and deadly and suffocating pressure of performance and merit, and the insidiousness and the deadly belief sown deep in your soul that if I want to be loved by God, if I want to be loved by somebody, 
If I want to be loved by anybody, then it's up to my performance. School counselors will tell you that there is an epidemic rate of children with eating disorders and anxiety disorders because they grew up in homes. They grew up in homes where things have been made very, very clear to them that their parents' affections wavered based on their child's performance. And it has been ground into the DNA of their soul that acceptance comes through performance. Be a good boy and you'll have my love. Be a bad boy and you receive the back of my hand. Even our most, the ones you think would understand grace the most, struggle with this deeply. Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, they found her journals after she died. And her journals are filled with deep and dark expressions of fear. Fear. Fear that God did not love her. Fear that she was not doing enough to worthy his love. That is no secure place to live. But when it is no longer about your record, it puts your feet on solid ground. It was unmerited in the first place. It wasn't your record. Therefore, guess what? It's not about your record now. It remains unmerited by you. And you know, oddly, oddly enough, you know what this makes us? It makes us a people who are so secure that we can begin to honestly look at ourselves for the first time. To honestly repent, to honestly admit to others, not flippantly, not foolishly, not lightly, but to admit just how sinful we are and how much, how much our sins have hurt others and God and ourselves. Are you willing to face your sins? Well, it actually, it actually takes grace to be able to face how bad you are. Heard the account of a man who went on a hayride with his son and his daughter-in-law, his grown son. He was in Pennsylvania, and it was in the fall, and it was just this idyllic situation. The, the leaves were changing, the air was crisp, except the experience was ruined. Because there's about 20 people on this hayride, and, there, and, and on this hayride was an incorrigible young boy who was misbehaving, and his father was even worse. You see, the father would simply chide the son and yell at the side and shame the son and silence the son into, try to, into pulling him into right behavior in order to protect his own reputation on the hayride. And the others in the hayride were so disturbed, so distressed by the father's behavior towards his son that it actually ruined the whole experience. I mean, everyone in the hayride was just embarrassed to actually even be seen amongst this scene. And when they got off the hayride, the man who had gone with his son and his daughter-in-law turned a comment to his son and you know what? Most of us would comment, wouldn't we? We'd be on the way to the car and we'd be like, can you believe what a jerk that guy was? Instead, this father looked to his grown son and said, I bet I shamed you like that when you were a little boy. And the grown son said, yeah, dad, you did. And this led to a three and a half hour talk that night that led them closer and more reconciled to one another than it ever had been. Why? All because the father had the spiritual integrity and the security to recognize his sin. And he understood that the gospel was enough. Was enough that he could be secure enough to embrace that he really was that bad. God, the grace sets you free and it makes you secure. It makes you secure to see yourself as you really are. Reflection four of what grace does. Grace is humbling. Grace is humbling. Verse nine not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace requires us to look at the cross and say, yeah, I really am that bad, I really am that help. It took the blood of Jesus to cover my sin. My sins are, 
are really that bad. But can we do that? It is so humbling and it is difficult. Remember the illustration from a couple weeks ago? From C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce where the one man, a good man, who had gone to hell. But he got to visit heaven one day and he was appalled to find a man he knew in, in the real world on earth. And that man was a murderer. And the man who committed murder... The, the, the guy asked him, how in the world did you get here? You murdered. And the guy who committed murder said this, heaven is none but for those, is for none who but ask. Nothing here can be purchased, you must simply ask. And the self-righteous man said, you won't, ask, you won't find me asking for any bleeding charity. Why? Because that would require him to humble himself. When the gospel of grace hits you, when the knowledge of how lost you were and how costly the payment was, when it hits you, guess what? It's traumatic. It will lead to tears. It will feel like it's crushing you at first. Let me give you an illustration of this. In, in the story of Les Mis, and this is a, a popular illustration, but there's a part at the end of it that's important to know. Written by Victor Hugo. Some of you know this story. You've seen the movie. Perhaps you've read the book. The main character, Jean Valjean, in his life he experiences horrendous injustice. He is a victim a true victim, a real victim to an unjust system and unjust evil men. And he's put in prison as a young man. And he goes to prison. He, he's thrown in there for years and years and lives in a hellhole. And the injustice turns his heart hard. He takes on the self-righteousness of a victim. His anger and his bitterness at what happened to him makes him feel superior to everyone else. Because no one, he would think, has suffered as I have. And so when he finally gets out and he's paroled, he lives with this mindset. The system has abused me, so I get to abuse everybody else and it's just okay. So he goes on and steals from others. So when, as you know, as the story goes, at one point he's taken to the house of a Catholic bishop. And the man is hospitable to him and warm to him and feeds him and cares for him and gives him a place to stay. But when the bishop goes to bed, Valjean gets up, steals the silverware, and runs. But the police, the police find him and see that the silverware, silver is not his own. He's a vagabond. What are you doing with a bag of silver? And the bishop, they bring him back to the bishop and they say, we caught this thief and he has your silver. And the bishop looks at him and he, to Jean Valjean's amazement, the bishop says to the police, oh, no, 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 no. I gave him the silverware. And here, and here he forgot to take the candlesticks. And he walks over and grabs enormous silver candlesticks and puts them in the bag. He says, I, I gave these to you as well. And so the police let Jean Valjean go. And then the priest says to him, he looks him in the eye and says, Jean Valjean, brother, you are now my brother. You no longer belong to evil. It is your soul that I have bought from the spirit of hell, and I now give you to God. Now here Valjean is staring grace right in the face. But then the next chapter begins. And here Victor Hugo gives us the insight into Jean Valjean's heart when he faces grace. The next chapter of the book, Hugo tells us of the immense struggle that happens within Jean Valjean. He is traumatized by this act of grace. He is angered by it at first. And the text says something like this. It said that when he saw this grace, there came over him a strange emotion. He was conscious that this pardon, this celestial kindness, was the greatest assault, the worst than all the beatings he had ever experienced, and this kindness was the most formidable attack he had ever experienced. You see what's going on? Valjean is battling between clinging to his self, clinging to his self-righteousness, and all the boasting of his self-righteousness, of his victimhood, or clinging to grace itself. His heart says, I've suffered. 
Therefore, I'm better than everybody else. The world has been unjust to me, so I deserve to take from these people. Ah, he's self-righteous. He's a victim. But he knew that if he accepted grace, if he accepted himself as a sinner who needed grace, he knew that if he yielded his grace, he would be obliged to renounce all his self-righteousness. And he would have to renounce his hatred for the jailers and his hatred for the system. And he would have to renounce the pride of his bitterness. And it was a traumatic moment in his life. To lay down the self is traumatic. To lay down the self and embrace the grace of God. When grace comes to you, it brings with it the trauma of humility. Grace comes and demands that we lay down our, our boasting. Let me ask you, are you mad at unbelievers? Do you live with a seething fury with everybody around you? Do you find that you're constantly irritated by the sins of other people? So much so that you have to talk about them and their failures. It's the heart of gossip, right? Our boasting. Is there someone that you refuse to forgive? I mean, you just can't. You just can't. The refusal to forgive is a place of boasting. It's a place of superiority. And so let me ask you, why, why did you believe the gospel and not someone else? Remember, remember where the gospel comes from? Did you buy it? Did you earn it? Did you merit it? Was it because you were more virtuous that God saved you? Or because you understood the things of grace better? Was it because you were more inclined towards spiritual things? The only reason you responded is because of God and his grace. And therefore, grace crushes superiority and hands us humility. Fifth, grace is artistic. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast, but in verse 10, Andy dealt with this so beautifully a couple weeks ago, we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That last word, those last words, for we are God's workmanship. The word there in the Greek is poema. It means you're a poem. You're a work of art. God has molded you. Grace molds you. It shapes you. Grace makes you a work of art. Grace makes you something to behold. Grace can actually turn you beautiful. And therefore, those who have experienced the grace of God become something beautiful in a broken world. I, I, I use many illustrations from my time in Sarajevo. And I got acquainted with many stories there. You know, one of the most famous stories from the war between 92 and 95 is there is a cellist, the cellist of Sarajevo. He was the lead cellist of the, the Sarajevo Orchestra, and one day he put on a black tie and his black tuxedo right smack dab in the middle of a war. And he took his chair and he placed his chair in the middle of a bombed-out crater and he began to play his cello. You see, the day before, that crater had been formed when a bomb had landed in the middle of a cafe in an area in downtown Sarajevo where his neighbors and friends were waiting in a bread line, killing 22 of them. In the midst of the hatred and the horror, right in the middle of a bomb crater, he sits down and he takes the gift that God has given him and he brings something beautiful to that place. And he didn't stop there. He would play at funerals. He would sit in cemeteries and he would play. He would sit in the middle of city streets that were utterly abandoned because of fear of sniper fire. And he would sit in those streets and he would play his cello so that those hunkered down in their homes could hear something beautiful. He would play music. Because it was what he had. 
It was his gift to the world, and he was saying, I will not do nothing in the face of the ugliness in the midst of war. I will bring good, and I will bring beauty. And those who have been shaped by the grace of God, this is what they do in a thousand different ways. What's the cello that God has painted into your hands? For some of you, it will be, I will not do nothing. Grace means I will engage in the lives of battered women. I will not allow women to, to continue to live in this place. That grace will form in you something beautiful that will say, I will not allow little boys to grow up without a father. That you'll say that, that the aged ones will not die alone. That this is who we become. That God's grace paints us as a generous people who become the most giving people on the earth. There was a video that went viral a couple years ago in New York City, actually done by a bunch of actors. Apparently not very good ones because this is all they could find to do. And they were, posing, they were posing as homeless people outside of a pizza places, which apparently there's a lot of in New York, right? And these, these people would go up to those who had pizzas. They'd go up to someone who was maybe eating outside of a pizza cafe, and they would say, they were dressed like homeless people, and they'd say, could you spare a slice of pizza? Here in a place of incredible wealth. A cheap food, really. And what the, they would film the people as, they, as they, they responded. They would say, get lost. Beat it. Get out of here. And because it was New York, there would also be a lot of expletives that would go with this. And the gist of the rejection was, go get a job. I earned this. This is for me and mine. But in the course of the video, they actually they found an actual homeless man. And they gave him half a pizza. He was thrilled. But then a few minutes later, one of the actors, also posing now as a homeless person, walked up to this actual real homeless person and asked if they could have a piece. And how do you think the homeless man, the real homeless man, responded with his half of pizza? He said, of course. Of course. Because those, those who know that life is a gift, that everything they have is from the Lord, they become people who are willing to give it away. To give it away. God's grace paints forgiving people. I'm not sure there's anything that is more telling in our lives than the willingness to forgive others. The other just simply might be when we're willing to receive forgiveness from others. When you say, I will not allow those who have hurt me to go unforgiven, that is the sign that grace has made you beautiful. John Perkins, John Perkins is a godfather, so to speak, in the reformed gospel civil rights movement. He's a beautiful man. He shows up at conferences all over the country to speak about his work. He's been working with impoverished people for decades and decades and decades. It wasn't always like that. John Perkins' brother was killed in Mendenhall, Mississippi by, by those who just simply beat his brother to death. John himself was severely beaten. He was an African-American man who grew up under the wrath of the Jim Crow South, and he grew up hating white people because of it, and especially poor white people. Because poor white people were often those who took the jobs as police officers and jail workers, and he hated them. For he had experienced their toe, and like Jean Valjean, he had grown in self-righteousness because of it. The self-righteousness of being a real victim. But then he met Jesus. And you know what John Perkins does? He goes and works with some of the most impoverished people in our country. And the group of people who are most often overlooked to impoverished in our country are poor white people. He says, everywhere I go, the number one group of people that I get to minister to are white people. 
God has given me such a heart for them. Grace becomes beautiful. He's a beautiful man. The story of grace and forgiveness in South Africa, it's actually so amazing, I'm not even sure it's real. I've used it before, but it sounds, it's, it's too unbelievable to believe. There was a police officer on trial in South Africa after apartheid. This is a famous story. And he's on trial for killing this poor, this poor woman, her husband, and her son. He didn't just kill them. He then burned them. And when they, she asked to go to the place where their bodies were burned, they took the ashes and scattered them so they could, she could never even find the place where it was their final resting place. It was vindictive, and it was nasty, and it was mean. And after apartheid was over, he was standing trial for this horrendous act, and she was standing in the court, and they're, they're, they had opportunities there where the, the victims would actually get to declare, tell the court, this is what I'd like to see happen as punishment in response to what this person did. And instead, this woman stood before the court, and she declared before that court that she forgave him. And she said, I ask one thing of this man. She asked this, that he would come to her house, and he would allow her to be his mother. She said, I lost my husband, and I lost my son, and I have lots of mothering left to do. And so for me, what I would love is to be your mother. The policeman was so stunned by this, whether this is apocryphal or not, I don't know but he fainted. And the courtroom began to sing Amazing Grace. Who does that? <laughs> Someone who has experienced the beauty of Amazing Grace. Last reflection. It wasn't so bad, was it? Grace is coming. We tend to think of grace as being something that we experienced in the past or maybe that we need right now. But you live, you live in a sea of grace. How will you go home? How will you make it home? By his grace. To me, the real kicker is not just this, not just this is the past. Not, you see what Ephesians 2 says, it's so amazing. He made us alive in Christ, raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And all that Jesus did, chapter 1 and chapter 2, leads to verse 7. And it says this. So that in the coming ages... That's eternity. So that in the coming ages, so that in heaven, he might show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Did you hear it? Grace has shown us grace, so God has shown us grace so that for all of eternity he might lavish upon us what? More grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. That's what heaven is. Grace, it's everlasting. He's doing all this so that you might be restored to relationship with him so that for all of eternity, you would just get to swim in a sea of grace that you go in deeper and deeper and deeper. You remember Willy Wonka? What was the most magical thing he created? The everlasting gobstopper. It was the piece of candy that would never go away. That's what grace is. It is the everlasting gobstopper of God's love and affection for you we are trophies of his grace. That he's going to bring into heaven and he's going to mount. No, he's not going to mount it. You're a living trophy. And therefore, what will heaven be? We sang of it earlier, wasn't it? We sang of it. When we sang, we will feast. We will feast. What is the feasting we will do in heaven? What will we do around the banqueting table? Heaven will be story after story after story over and over and over again. And every story will end like this. 
He did it. He did it. He did it. And when we do that, and when we sit around today and tomorrow and for all of eternity, and we say it over and over and over again, he did it, guess what God gets? Glory. Glory to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Lord, it's amazing that we can be the people who most, most proclaim that we would live by grace, who use the word most often, and yet seem to forgive it, forget it most quickly. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that what we experience right now, that you would re, reframe and reshape our hearts once again. May this morning be like you've made us like hot clay, warm clay again. Would you have broken through in such a way this morning that you would sit here, the potter's hands, reforming our hearts and our lives to be the, the work of art that is of grace. Reform us and make us something beautiful, Lord, shaped by the hands of grace. Oh, would you do that? By the work of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.